Theoretically, holiday weekends like this are also designated to be a time of rest. School is completed for the year. Most places of businesses will be closed tomorrow. Many people are going to kick back or uh, hang around by a lake or a pool. Maybe you'll just lay on the couch all day tomorrow and rest. Whatever you do, I certainly hope there will be some rest in this weekend for you. Now, those of you who know me personally will know that I'm not very good at this thing called rest. I don't do it well. And um, so it's with a certain sense of uh, trepidation that I let you know that I'm going to speak on the subject of rest this morning. I know some of you are going to think it's hypocritical of me to do that, though I've always been rather forthright about saying that every sermon I preach, I'm preaching first uh, to myself. And just to let you know, this will not be the first subject that I've talked about from this pulpit that I'm still working on, okay? There have been many others. That's why I echo the words of Paul to the Philippians when he said, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on. How many people are pressing on with me this morning? Amen? I want us to look for just a few minutes at what the Bible has to say about rest. The truth is it's a very spiritual term, at least as it appears in Scripture, and I think we could all uh, learn more about it starting with me. I'm going to be honest with you, this is going to be a rather unusual approach for me to take with you, uh, and this message is certainly for those who have ears to hear. If you have your Bible, I'm going to begin in Matthew chapter 11. I will wander to another passage or two, and then I will circle back to this main text. I want to lay it out for you first, and then I'll take a journey to unpack it Uh, with you, and then we will come back to this main text. But here's Matthew chapter 11, starting with verse 25. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things. Would you say that word? That you've hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Can you give your amen to the reading of the word today? These last three verses, 28, 29, 30, they contain some of the most profound truths that are given to us in the whole of the New Testament. Uh, I'm sure they were familiar to you. Come to me, all you who labor. We, We read these verses, we talk about these verses, possibly you've even memorized these verses, and yet it, it, it would appear to me that we don't fully understand what's being said in these verses. Do we really understand what Jesus meant when he said, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The rest Jesus is speaking of here is not just the absence of activity, but rather it is the absence of striving. 
Biblical rest is not merely the absence of activity um, so much as it is the absence of striving and particularly striving in our own strength. This is not a call this morning for you to stop every aspect of service that you are rendering to the kingdom of God. As much as you may want a break and want a time of rest and that may be necessary for you, this is not a a call for all of that to stop, but it is a call for all of us to know what it is to experience biblical rest. Since the fall of man, the fall of Adam, there have been many who have wanted to get back to God, though sin came into the world, many who wanted to come back to God and to live lives that are pleasing in his sight. It was just two weeks ago that R.T. Kendall spoke to us on the subject of pleasing God, if you recall, and he used Enoch as his example. Now, the reality of it is this. Not all of us in this room are in the same place when it comes to this idea of wanting to please the Lord. We're not all there. Some of you are here this morning strictly out of curiosity. Maybe you've heard that Bethesda has great music and you decided it was time for you to come and check it out for yourself and that's fine and we certainly welcome you. We're glad that you're here. Some are in the house today simply looking for fire insurance. You don't really want to go to hell, but you don't really want to live for heaven either. Maybe you just like to attend church. That's true for some in the house today. I also have to allow for the, fact, for the fact that there are some in the house who simply just, they don't really care. For some reason they're here, but they don't really care. They, they live in absolute rebellion to God and to God's ways. And they live in rebellion to the reality of God and, and in rebellion to the eternity of God, and they will suffer those, the consequences for such. But there are also many here today who truly want to live for God. If there are any in the house, would you say amen today? You want to live lives that are pleasing to him. You want to live lives that bring honor and glory to his name. And so you come to church and you work hard. Some of you work very hard at spiritual things and doing spiritual things. You practice self-discipline. You try to do the things you've been taught to do as a Christian. You come to church. You have personal daily devotions. You faithfully open your Bible. You, truths are taught to you about Christian virtues and Christian living, and you sincerely determine in your heart that you want to live a strong Christian life. And many people work hard at Christian self-disciplines. But we also see this. Sometimes they end up like a stringed instrument that is wound up way too tight, and they could snap at any moment. Some can easily become rigid in their dogged determination to serve God, and you don't dare add one more ounce of burden to that because it could snap at any second. They are, they are just working hard, really hard at being a Christian. And if that is you, you're the one I'm talking to today. If it's you, you could even be in the sanctuary today but be out of sync with the sound of true worship. Look at the guitars that will play here on Sunday morning. If the strings on one of these guitars were wound too tight, it would certainly alter their pitch. It would completely change the tonality of the instrument and you would hear it, but it wouldn't sound right. Something would sound odd or out of sync or strange. It would be sonically displeasing and would not be contributing to the sound of true worship. Now the person playing the instrument could be completely sincere 
possibly the most sincere person on the platform. But the instrument is not tuned properly. There is no rest in the instrument. Instead of bringing you and I to the throne of God with rest and peace, the sound it generates is dissonance and and discord, a sound not conducive to nor appropriate for coming into the presence of the Lord. And that's some of us here today in this room. There are some of us who seem to be almost stooping or bending under the weight of trying so hard to do right. You're bending under the weight of trying to please God. And we have no better example of this than the Apostle Paul himself, who seems to struggle with this whole idea. If I take you to Romans chapter 7, as I depart the text for a moment, look at what he, Paul gives us in Romans chapter 7, where he seems to be speaking for you and I when he describes how we in our own strength try to please the Lord. He says, I don't really understand myself in Romans 7, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. Is he the only one in the room? Is there anybody else? I have to raise my hand. And then in verse 18 and 19, and I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature. I want to do right, but I can't. It is not all that unusual in the Christian life to have those seasons where you know what is right and you want to do the right thing, but for whatever reason, you just simply can't do it. You can't find the strength to do it. And Paul says that in verse 19, I want to do what's good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. And so listen to the tension within him as we, as we go to what he says in verse 22. I love God's law with all of my heart. And that's the dilemma so many Christians find themselves in. I love God's law. I love the word of the Lord. I know God's word is right, and I, I do want to do it. Paul's words in Romans that he gives us is simply a statement of the, the human condition in which we all can find ourselves. And then in verse 24, you know what he says. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Paul is describing a situation that really only happens to those who truly want to walk with God, those who truly want to please the Lord. And that tension is only there because of wanting to be pleasing in God's sight. They have a, a sensitive conscience which is, causes them to want to do the right thing, which is a great and wonderful thing. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, we have the hypocrite who's on the other side. A hypocrite is content with religious ceremony They even scoff at the suggestion that religious ceremony might even be enough to get them into heaven. Well, of course they think it is. They're not really overly concerned as to whether their life is aligned with the truth of God's word. The hypocrite is perfectly happy to show up at church on Sunday, Bible under their arms, sing a few songs, say God bless you to a handful of people and then walk out the door. Can I tell you, that is what religion does to a person. Religion can bring you to the point of concern, concerning yourself only with exteriors, with no deep inward desire to have a life truly in line with God. When Becky and I first got here in 1978, there were actually no restaurants hardly at all in this part of Northeast Tarrant County. And we had church on Sunday night, 
And, you know, it was always kind of the common thing to go, after, go out to grab something to eat after church, but there was no place to eat. And Mary might remember we had to drive to Irving. We have to go to JoJo's in Irving to sit down and have something to eat. Some of you remember way back when that was the case. We finally got some restaurants in this area. Hallelujah. We did have running water and electricity, <laughs> but that was about it. I remember, for whatever reason, you know, some moments get seared in your mind. I remember sitting at a corner booth with Des and Mary. Stephen was seven, so that would have made Anthony, what, about five? Four or five, something like that. And uh, they were feisty young boys, for sure. And it was fun going out to eat with them. And I remember I was trying to get acquainted with, with Des uh, and understand the, the differences in him and every other pastor I had known and the depth of what he was, what he was teaching us. I had come, I'd been raised in a classical Pentecostal past. And my, that was my upbringing where there were a lot of restrictions and they had to do with the exterior. It was much more stringent on the ladies than it was on the men. Ladies uh, couldn't wear, weren't supposed to wear makeup and, and their hair had to be done a certain way and no earrings and no jewelry and, and, and whatever. It was, you know, very boring for them. Ladies, how many, glad you've been, how many of you are glad you've been delivered from that? Okay. How many men are glad the ladies have been delivered from there? That's what we really want to know. But I remember asking Pastor Des, I said, Pastor Des, I, I, I'm trying to understand. He talked, talked about being alive in Jesus, what it is to be alive in Jesus. And I, I try to be careful about the way I asked the question because I was so intimidated and terrified of him at that time. And uh, I, I said, help me understand, because it would seem to me like the people I grew up with who they were so careful about how they dressed and they gave up so much you know, for their Christianity, they were, they're living lives of such great devotion. And in a very careful way, very subtle way, very pastoral way, he let me know that there's something to our Christianity besides just the exteriors. You see, I've been raised in an environment where exteriors were just about everything. We had somehow come to believe that if you got the exteriors right, and who, anybody, if they work, you know, fairly hard, they could get the exteriors right, got the exteriors right, did the right thing, said the right thing, wore the right cologne, did the right this and that, you know, that somehow that was an indication the interior was just fine. How many of you know we've learned that's not the case? Exteriors could be in all in order, but it did not indicate that the interiors was there. But religion can cause you to be concerned only with the exteriors. How many know I'm telling you the truth? You know, it's very uncomfortable to talk to someone and realize that you can no longer speak to them about spiritual things. When you've seen someone slip far from God, and the first thing that you'll notice with them is that typically they have an answer for just about everything. When you're speaking to someone who really has completely lost grip on their walk with God, whatever you say to them, they've got an answer for just about everything, even though that answer they give you sounds so very hollow and leaves you very empty. And you will also notice with that person that they have written off every vessel of the Word of God. They found some reason to discredit every man or woman of God. They've looked at pastors and church leaders and perceived certain flaws, which somehow gives them the right to not have to listen anymore to sound judgment. And you may even see them at church. They may often attend services with their hands in the air, all while they are headed toward destruction because the truth is they're walking far from God and they can no longer be reached. But the righteous truly want to please the Lord. 
and that longing to please him resonates from deep within their hearts. For you see, they know that God promises to keep and guide those who are called to represent him on this earth. How many of you are glad God keeps you and guides you? Say amen to that today. Let me circle back now to our original text, only this time go with me to the beginning of the chapter 11 of Matthew. At the beginning of this chapter, word came to Jesus that John the Baptist, a man who knew Christ and loved him, had become confused. His life had become difficult. John was now in prison. We find him there at the beginning of Matthew 11. And in his difficulty and imprisonment, he started to doubt the reality of what he had heard and learned about the Lord Jesus. I don't know about you, but I wonder what happened to him in prison. Where had his mind taken him? What had happened with the difficulty of his circumstances that had caused him to even begin to doubt and question? What had taken place within his soul? Your soul is your mind, your will, and your emotions. Something had happened within John. And I wonder what it was. Did he wonder if after his season of announcing the coming of the Messiah and calling the nation of Israel to repentance, did he think it just should be a time for him to to rest? Did he have a mental picture of what the end of his life was going to be like or what he had hoped it was going to be like and it just didn't pan out like that at all? What did that do to him? What did it do to his soul? What did it do to his mind? And so in prison, he sent word asking the Lord because now he begun to question, are, are, are you the one we should look for or should we seek another? This is the man who had announced, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Here's what I love about the Lord Jesus, Bethesda. Jesus was not even slightly daunted by the waffling of John, not even slightly, nor did it cause him to lose confidence in the man of God within John. Jesus turned to the crowd when that question was approached to him, when John had, had sent the message asking, do we look, uh, do, are you the one we look for or should we seek another? Jesus turned to the crowd and he said, when you went out to see John, What did you think you would see? A reed shaken by the wind? Is that what you thought you would see? No, that's not who John is because it was written in the word of God that John was going to be the messenger to herald my coming. In other words, Jesus was saying there was something written about John and it cannot be overcome by adversity or what that adversity does to John. Something had been established And I want to say to you today, when you came into the kingdom of God, there was something God had decreed about you and for your life. Certainly, the whole of the journey will not be be smooth. It won't be without challenge, even great challenge. But here's what you need to know, because he has decreed something over your life. He will never fail you. He will never forsake you. There ought to be a bigger hallelujah to that this morning. You will not be overcome because it is the Lord himself who has declared that you will not be overcome. For all intents and purposes, it appeared as though John was losing his faith, but Jesus said, no, he is not a reed shaken by the wind. Yes, he's facing tremendous adversity, but he will not be, he will not be bowed down by it. He will not be overcome by it. <clears throat> 
The Lord is saying, just because my plan for your life looks different than your plan for your life does not mean that you are going to be overcome by that which you are facing. Let me say that again. I think the Lord is saying that to some of us today. Just because his plan for your life looks different than your plan for your life does not mean that you're going to be overcome by the adversity that you're facing. Hallelujah. Therefore, Bethesda, cast not away your confidence in times of difficulty. You are not a reed shaken by the wind. Every genuine Christian in the house needs to hear this today. You are not going to be overcome by the adversity you are facing. Someone ought to say, bless the Lord for that. Do we live in challenging days? Sure. We're bombarded with negativity from every side. Truth has fallen in the streets. Godlessness is abounding. But I am declaring today that you and I will not be bent over by the wind of adversity. We are, are going to make it through because God foreordained a plan for your life the day you came to Christ. He foreordained a way for you to bring glory and honor to his name. And as God lives, you and I are going to make it to the end and we will cross that line victorious. Fighting the good fight finishing our race, and keeping the faith. We will have a crown of righteousness. We will have a song in our heart. We will have a bounce in our step. We will not be triumphed over by any power of hell or evil. Hallelujah. Bless his name. Working my way back to our original text of verse 25 of Matthew 11. But I'm stopping at verse 16 as I'm on my way back. Jesus said, but to what shall I liken this generation? What shall I liken this generation? No matter how I call, there seem to be those who will not enter into this life that glorifies God. There is a calling, Bethesda, into his rest. A calling into his rest. Some will hear it and some will not. Jesus says, I have called you into the power of an endless life. I have called you into something bigger than yourself. I have called you into something other than yourself. I have called you into a strength that is not your own. But no matter how I call, if you look in this passage here, near verse 16, no matter what vessel I use, what person I use to bring the message to you, no matter how I call, whether it is mourning or dancing, many will still not come. And then in verse 20, Jesus began to rebuke the cities where most of his mighty works had taken place because they, they did not repent. No matter how he called, no matter how he appealed to them, no matter what mighty works they saw, many would still not repent nor come to him. So now as we come back to the verse where we started, I want to see if our opening text makes even a bit more sense as I read again verse 25. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent, those who would not respond to the call and have revealed them to babes he thanked his father. Jesus thanked his father for the secret of who he was. It was hidden from all those except for those who knew that their total strength and dependence was upon God and God alone. The only ones who see 
the rest of God. The only ones who respond to the calling of God to come into his rest are those who know that they are completely dependent upon his strength, completely dependent upon God and God alone. In other words, he said, Father, you've hidden it from the wise. You, you, you've hidden it from the clever. You, you've hidden it from those who are striving. You've hidden it from those who are always learning but never coming to the knowledge of the truth of God. You've hidden it from those whose entire relationship with God is rules and regulations. Those who categorize people and scorn the weak and, and the weary. Those who put new diplomas on their walls and have some new thought about God. Jesus said, Father, you've hidden it from these. You've hidden it from those who use God for their own gain. You've hidden it from these and you've revealed your truth to babes. You've revealed your truth to those who know they have no strength. They know they cannot walk unless someone reaches down and, and holds their hands. They know they have no, no ability to do anything on their own, and they are at times the weakest of the weak. And Jesus said, Father, you've hidden these great truths about your power, your justice, and your plan. You've hidden them from all those who use you for any purpose other than to be a vessel through which you are glorified on the earth. They'll never know your power. They'll never come into your rest. They'll always be like instruments wound up too tight, the strings wound too tight, always questioning the reality of God, always doubting and debating every time there's a storm or some difficulty that comes their way, never coming into that secret place of rest. I want you to know today that the place of God's rest is not found in strength, it's found in weakness. The place of God's rest is not found in strength. It's found in weakness. It is not found in knowledge. It's found in trust. You and I come into the place of rest when we come to the point where we say, Jesus, I trust you. I trust you. Jesus, I trust you. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise just to know thus saith the Lord. Lord, I trust you whether I'm lying in a hammock on the beach or whether I'm in a ship that is falling apart in the turbulent ocean. I'm gonna trust you, Lord, whatever it is. That's because I'm gonna rest in you. I trust you whether I'm healthy or whether I'm sick. Lord, I'm gonna trust you whether things are going in the way I think they should or if they're going in the complete opposite direction. Lord, I trust you. I trust you because I trust you. And to the person who has found the biblical place of rest, there is one cry in the heart, and that, that cry is this, Father, glorify your name through me. Glorify your name. Lord, glorify your name right where I am, not with thoughts of escaping or going to some other place. Glorify your name right where I am, right where I walk today, right in the midst of the people I rub shoulders with every day. Lord, Glorify your name right in my circumstances, with my paycheck, in my house, with my kids, my husband, my wife. Glorify your name, O oh God, through me. Is that the cry of your heart today? Lord, I'm tired, I'm weak, I'm worn. I've tried to glorify your name and I can't. I need you to glorify your name through me. I've done all the right things, I've studied your word, I've been to all the prayer meetings, but I still need you to glorify your name in me. 
Paul said to the Romans in that passage from chapter seven, who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? And quickly he says, thank God the answer is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank God I don't have to do it in my own strength. None of us can do it in our own strength. It doesn't matter what you've accomplished in the past. It doesn't matter how difficult the trials are today. It doesn't matter how many years you've walked with God. We cannot overcome in our own strength. The moment you think you can do it in your own strength is the moment you're going to find out you can't. Father, you've hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and those who think that they have the strength and you've revealed them to babes. I think of my youngest granddaughter, Soren. When she wants to walk up these steps, she reaches for Papa's hand because she's, you know, she could climb up, but she wants to walk up, taking one step at a time. And when she was first learning to walk, she would reach out to take, some, to take my hand or one of us in the family, take somebody's hand. That's who the truth of God's word and what rests in God, that's who it's revealed to. The people who know that they have no strength, that they have an, outreach, an outstretched hand. So verse 28, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. When you dig into the original language of this text, here's what it's saying. Come to me all you who labor. Those who feel fatigued in spirit. Pastor Brent, you can come. Those who feel fatigued in spirit. You're tired from working hard. You've even worked hard at being a Christian. You've worked hard to have a testimony, but you're tired. You feel bowed down and it's gotten heavy. So come to me, all you who labor. And then it says, and are heavy laden. That means you're loaded up. You're overburdened with spiritual ceremony and and anxiety. And you're saying, I can't handle it anymore. I, I find it hard to read my Bible. I find it hard to engage in a prayer meeting. And the verse says, and I will give you rest. The actual definition, when you dig into it, is it's a letting down or a loosening of cords or strings which have been drawn too tight. I will give you rest. Loosening the cords that have been drawn too tight. God's rest. He'll reach down and unwind that tension that is within you. And I'll bring your life into the right pitch where you can lift your hands and give glory to me because the two of us are singing the same song. We're actually walking together. My dad died in August of 2000. He was a pastor all my life. Most of you know that. My dad was a completely different personality than me. We're still trying to figure out where I came from. They don't know. And certainly in my younger days, my propensity to get things wound up pretty tight was, was intense. I was very good at that, getting things all wound up. And we talked almost every Sunday as I was driving home from church because we, you know, we talk about church. I was raised in church. He pastored. I was on staff here. My dad had an incredible ability, and the only way I could describe it to people is it's like he knew where the pressure valve was. And I could see his hand on the valve, and I could almost hear it go, I can't even tell you exactly how he did it, but it was wonderful to have someone in my life who knew how to, when I had the propensity to get things wound up way too tight, which we can do. God's rest. He wants to reach down, church, on this weekend. Psst. 
and release the pressure that's there. Bring your life into the right pitch so that you can walk together in peace and harmony. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You've heard this illustration, I'm sure, many times. When you have oxen plowing in the fields, typically you would have an older, strong, stable oxen who knew the pathway and knew how to cultivate the ground. And, and quite often, some of the older oxen did not even have to be led. They would just, and they would take a young oxen who is just learning what it's like to walk this pathway and cultivate the ground. And they would pair up the younger with the older, one of each in that, uh, in that yoke. And the younger one didn't know the path, was not as strong as the older, and was oftentimes confused. But the stability and strength of the older one would carry the young one along as it was learning how to cultivate and learning the route and what was needed to do the work of the master. And when we take upon the yoke as the weaker partner, the first thing we find is that we have so little, if anything, to add to the journey, almost nothing to add to the journey because we're taking his yoke upon us. So we say, Lord, what is it that you, that you want me to do? And you know what his response comes back is, I just want you to walk with me. Walk with me. We're going to walk this together. He's in one part of the yoke. I'm in the other. But he's saying, I'm the one who's pulling the plow. I'm the one who provides the strength. I'm the one who knows where to go. All you have to do is walk with me. Well, but Lord, why do you want, why do you want me? I don't have anything to bring to this journey. Nothing at all. And he replies, I want you because I love you. I want you because I love you. You know, folks, waiting to come to the Lord when you get your life cleaned up is like waiting to go to the emergency room when you stop bleeding. He doesn't love some future version of you. He loves you the way you are today. And some of you need to hear that. And he wants to walk with you in your weakness and impart to you the strength that you don't have and give you the power to do what you could never do upon your, on your own. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle or meek and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. What the Bible has to say about rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When you research this last verse, you find that a comparison is used to, de to define, I found it in a couple of my sources. It's like the difference between rowing and sailing. Which one would you prefer to do? Would you prefer to row or would you prefer to have the wind filling your sails in order to get to the other side? I will choose the sailing, you can row if you want. We may have some small part to play in the journey, but the power to make the journey comes from another source. So our verse for today is this, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let's stand together.